Welcome to episode 14 of the Humanist Agenda podcast. Today, Dr. Susan Jones will give us her talk on right brain, left brain, why you are never alone. We have heard the idea that the two halves of our own brain do different things and that we could be right-brained or left-brained. Professor Jones will present current research and the latest findings on this topic. Now, on to the talk. Okay, thank you for coming out for this. So we've seen this one, and we're looking at the brain from the top down, and there are two hemispheres. And they are connected by something called the, we see something called the corpus callosum, which is a bundle of fibers that connects the two sides of your brain so that they work together, sending information back and forth across that little gap in between them, okay? And you don't notice that you have two hemispheres because they seem to work so seamlessly together. I'm starting with Wilder Penfield, which uh, is because you may recall seeing Wilder Penfield on television in the sesquicentennial. He was one of the great Canadians that was featured in ads throughout the year. And he is a great Canadian, although he did start out an American. And he is known in both the fields of um, neurosurgery and neuroscience as a very creative, brave, and um, ultimately influential scientist. Okay? So here he is, and he was at, uh, he was in Montreal. He was at the, at McGill and at the Neurological Institute there. And we're going to talk just a little bit about what he did. This is the ad you saw. There was a patient lying on a, a bed in surgery, and uh, she says, burnt toast. Dr. Penfield, I can smell burnt toast. Do you remember that? That was about the surgical technique that Penfield came up with, which we'll see in the next slide, okay? But he was a great and innovative surgeon, as I say there. He was famous in medicine for pioneering a particular approach to brain surgery, which no one had really done before. And he's also famous in neuroscience for pioneering a technique to identify what the different areas of the brain are actually responsible for. He's particularly famous for doing two areas of the brain in great detail. And you see them there, the motor cortex and the somatosensory cortex. And just very briefly, you have in each hemisphere this deep kind of fissure down the middle of the hemisphere, more or less. And ahead of that fissure is a band of tissue that is given over to sending orders out to the muscles of your body to move in various ways. And then on the back side of that fissure is the somatosensory cortex, which is not all of your senses, but where information from um, mostly your skin arrives in the brain from the different parts of your body so that you feel touched, okay? And also information from uh, some of your guts as well. And he found out how those areas were laid out with a kind of interesting technique that we'll see in a second. Okay, So the human brain is, uh, by most accounts, the most complex thing we know of in the universe. It has about 86 billion neurons, and that's nobody's actually counted them, as you can imagine. But it's kind of an, you know, an estimate from taking little chunks of brain and counting the number of cells in that chunk, and then extrapolating to the size of the brain. So lots and lots of billions of neurons with all kinds of connections amongst them, making all kinds of systems. So you can imagine the number of different ways you could connect 86 billion neurons. Very complicated. It's not really well understood for that reason, although the general principles are, as I said, okay. But in my view, it also does not get enough respect. 
And I say this because I keep seeing this ad for the stuff that was first found in jellyfish, you know, and you're supposed to give it to your brain to help your memory. And it's never explained why the jellyfish are helpful. The fact is, as you probably are aware, that everything you know, everything you know, almost everything you do, and the exceptions are things like, you know, knee jerk when the doctor hits you below the kneecap, but virtually everything else you do and everything you experience happens in your brain. When you think that your foot is hurting, your foot is sending information to your brain and your brain is interpreting that as pain in your foot, but the pain is in your brain, okay? So everything's in the brain. And in fact, I would say that it's reasonable to say that you are your brain. Your brain isn't just a piece, you know, that you give medicine to. It is you. And the rest of your body is your brain's equipment. So it's very much like we would think of a robot and not find that surprising at all that you have a robot. It's got a computer in it somewhere. The computer does all the calculations and uh, comes up with the uh, programs for, or for moving the various parts of the body and they move on various kinds of, you know, with little machinery in there. And that is essentially the same as the human. So we have a computer in our heads, riding high up on this equipment. But it took people a long time to figure this out. And so for a very long time, and including into the present day, thank you, the present day, uh, major cultures took the heart to be the home of all these things. So, you know, you had a spirit that was in your heart, physical activity is regulated by your heart, intellectual activity, moral activity, especially emotional activity. We still have that idea around. And in fact, in uh, Egypt, you know, embalmers kept the heart and threw away the brain because it was just a lump of something. But and as you can see in our culture now, we have still a lot of um, respect for the heart as the seat especially of emotions and attitudes and so forth. But this is all brain stuff. By the 19th and 20th centuries then, scientists had finally begun to explore how our brains work. And it became clear that the brain is the person. In the early days, the exploration was done with people who were victims of experiments of nature, by which we mean bad things happen to them, but they taught scientists a lot about the brain. So people then, as now, would have strokes, okay, and the, exam the um, damage to their brains would be visible at autopsy as dead tissue. And some clever doctors realized that if, while their patients were alive, they gathered them into groups who had similar symptoms, then they could look at their brains after they died and find areas of overlap of the damage and infer that those were the areas that used to control the things that they had all lost, that they all had in common as a, as a deficit. Okay? The doctors looked for areas of overlap, in other words, and decided what patients had in common. And here's a, a modern example of uh, three stroke patients who all had the same kinds of difficulties with speech while they were alive. They had difficulties with the structure in productive speech. So they had lots of nouns, and they'd have verbs in isolation, but they couldn't put together grammatical sentences very well. And after death, you look at the brains. Only these are now scans, so that we're talking about being able to do this while people are alive, looking for the damage. And the areas of uh, the brightest orangey-red are the areas of overlap between these three people. And so that is an area that's inferred to be involved in grammar in making sentences, having the sentence structures. And it is, in fact, uh, Broca's area. And uh, it confirms, these scans confirm what a doctor named Broca, many years before, had inferred from, again, autopsying patients who had passed away. Okay. And of course, there are 
unfortunately, a range of different kinds of brain abnormalities that need surgery. So we're getting back to Wilder Penfield here. This is a operating room back in the 1920s. Wilder Penfield, the father of modern neuroscience, and I will tell you why. He specialized in surgical cures for seizure disorders. And what he would do is operate to remove tissue where the seizures began. And you know, a seizure is a sort of an electrical storm in the brain. Our brains function as electrochemical signalers, all the little neurons signal to one another using electrochemical um, apparatus, but that can get carried away, it can begin, begin to spread, um, it can take over, become a kind of wildfire, and this can be life-threatening. So what Penfield would do was remove the tissue where the seizures began, if he could find it, and stop that whole process. But he realized that these surgeries that he was doing also provided him with an opportunity to explore how the brain is organized once he was in there. He could have a look around. All right, so here is a picture. Actually, Penfield is one of these masked men here early in his career. And this is uh, an operating room in Montreal. And you can see, I think, the patient lying down here. And they've got the uh, required black band across his eyes so he can't be identified. And they're working away on the brain. And this is a nurse. And the nurse is holding his hand. And why is she holding his hand? because he's wide awake. And he's wide awake because although they have taken off his top of his skull, in fact, now don't anybody get queasy, but you know, take off temporarily top of his skull to expose the surface of his brain. This can be done under local anesthetic. And then you can poke around in the brain because the brain itself does not have any pain receptors. So when you're operating on the brain, the brain doesn't feel itself, okay? And when, when you have a headache, for example, that's not your brain hurting. That's the tissues around your brain hurting. This is the uh, contribution that uh, Penfield made, open skull surgery. And what he was doing in there was looking again for the origin of someone's seizures. And how could he find the origin? So the burnt toast lady again. Oh, by the way, yeah, Penfield's procedure is called the Montreal Procedure, and it's done all over the world now. Okay, awake craniotomy. So she's saying she smells burnt toast, and that's a clue. That's a clue because she f smells burnt toast just before she begins to have a seizure. So Penfield reasons that the site of the beginning of the seizure is wherever the memory of the smell of burnt toast is. Because you only recognize the smell of burnt toast because you've smelled it before, and you have a memory of that. And she's got that memory being um, activated, and he wants to know where in her brain, because that's where her seizures are starting, and that's where he wants to do a little operating, okay? He'll surgically remove the tissue at that site, and hopefully she won't have these seizures anymore. So where is it, and how do you find it? We now know that it's probably in tissue near the olfactory bulb, which is, logically enough, right up in here, behind where your nose is, where all the receptors are for the molecules that give you a sense of smell, and then back the back of your throat, okay? And the tissue around that little yellow area, which would be the olfactory bulb itself, where the information arrives in your brain, the tissue around it would take that information and assess it and identify, oh, the smell of burnt toast, okay? So that's what Penfield finds. That's what he's looking for, is the place where the sensation begins. How does he find it? Here's how Penfield mapped what different areas of the brain are responsible for. 
Here's an open skull with a brain. That's the surface of the brain. Penfield is standing there with a little electrical wire with a very small um, current, okay, very low level current, and he will touch the surface of the brain. And he will ask the patient who is wide awake, what do you experience? What's going on? What do you notice? And they will say, something could say, oh, I smell burnt toast, or they could say, my fingers are tingling, or they could move, they could say, I feel a little indigestion, they could say a number of different things, tell him what it is they're experiencing, and he takes a little paper tag, you see all the little paper tags? This is high tech. He takes a little paper tag, writes a number on it, sticks it on the brain, and he tells somebody taking notes over in the corner what the patient is saying is going on in that particular area of the brain. And as I said, Penfield is most famous for mapping these two areas in particular, the motor cortex and the somatosensory cortex, using this technique. So here are sort of cartoons of what the brain tissue in these two strips that I showed you is actually responsible for, is actually doing. Okay? And you have these strips on both sides of your head, in both hemispheres. You've got a somatosensory cortex and you've got a motor cortex on both sides of that rift that I showed you. Okay? But these cartoons show you the proportionate amount of brain tissue that's given over to different areas of your body. So if you look at the uh, sensory side for the moment, you can tell me, I think, well, first of all, do you see how logical the layout is? How reasonable it is? It starts your feet. Okay, the sensations coming from your feet arrive down in between your two hemispheres. And then the leg is the next area of brain, receiving sensations from your leg. And then you go to the rest of your body, your torso, your head, but the, notice the face is missing from that head. So your skull, okay? Uh, that's the area that responds when you're getting your hair done at the barber or the hairdresser, and it feels nice to have your scalp massaged, okay? And then we come out the arm, not a lot of tissue given over to the lower arm or to the forearm. And then, whoa, big hunk of tissue given over to the hand, sensations from the hand. And beyond that, in an illogical place, a huge amount of tissue given over to the face, at least the lower part of the face. And the lips, very sensitive. You know the lips are sensitive, and that's why, because there's a tremendous amount of brain tissue given over to receiving sensations from the lips. And here we have the tongue. This is the jaw, by the way. Not much tissue given over to sensations from your jaw, but a tremendous amount of tissue given over to sensations from your tongue. So if you were an alien and you were looking at this cartoon, you were looking at this brain, and you were doing the same kind of analysis as Penfield did, what would you assume about this creature? What's important to this creature? Speech. Absolutely. Language. This brain is given, has so much tissue given over to the lower part of the face and the tongue because of language. So our brains are tremendously committed to language. Uh, you might be wondering about where the genitals are, by the way. They're that little, little blob there at the top, just below the foot. Not a whole bunch of sensation from the brain's point of view. Okay? What else is important, though? Obviously, the language is the most important over here. And what else? The hand. That's right. Because what else are we? Tool makers, tool users. You need to, yeah, your dexterity has, you're capable of it because of all the brain tissue that's devoted to sensations from the hand because you need that feedback what's going on out there okay and then you have actually a lot of tissue 
given over to sensations from the foot compared to other parts of the body. Why is that? Say louder. Well, you sort of have to know where you're going. That's, that's absolutely related. I would say it is you need to know if you stepped on something. That is, you have to take care of your feet. If you are a nomadic group, you got to keep up. And so you got to know, like when you try to go into the lake here, right, and it's all stony, it hurts. And that's good information for you. That's good information to avoid injury to the feet that are so important to you. Okay? Go over to the motor side very quickly, and you've got something like the same layout, You've got not much uh, of the brain tissue given over to movements of your leg, for example. Well, how many things can your legs do? Now, it may be that people who are, for example, um, skaters, professional you know, or, or competitive skaters, would have more of the tissue of that part of the uh, motor cortex devoted to movements of the legs. You might see that because these things can happen from experience. Okay? The brain isn't just built like that for no reason. It's built like that by what happens to you during development, what you do during development. So you can overextend any of these areas if you have those specializations. But again, if you look at the uh, hand, the amount of brain given over to movements of the hand, a lot of it, and movements of the face, a lot of it, for the same reasons that we've already talked about. And here's the tongue here, because speech, you talk 200 words a minute sometimes, a lot of different movements for each word, okay? It's gotta be accurate. So you need both to be able to do the movements and also to get the feedback from where is my tongue right now. So these are little sort of statues of what are called homunculi showing the uh, relative importance of the different parts of the human body from the point of view of the brain, the motor and the sensory. They're similar to one another, not exactly the same. So as I said, you have a motor and a sensory strip on each side of your brain and each serves the opposite side of your body and most of us know that. You know someone who's had an injury perhaps and they've excuse me, lost the use of one side of their face or, or one side of their body. And you know that the injury was in the opposite side of the brain. So we have this crossover where the right hemisphere of the brain controls the left side of the body and receives sensory information from the left side of the body and vice versa. And there's no good explanation for this. That's just the way it is. A greater understanding of the different functions of the brain and where they're localized started to accumulate in the 1960s when a new surgery, not Penfield this time, was developed um, where you would cut those connections between the two hemispheres at the cortical level, not all the way down. There are other you know, lower structures of the brain that you would not cut, but the part where there's sort of thinking and the things that we've talked about so far. And you would hopefully be saying, why on earth would you ever do that? And the reason is, again, treating seizure disorders because seizures can kill you if they spread too badly and they get, say, to your brainstem, which is where the structures are that keep you breathing and your heart beating and so forth, okay? We don't want that to happen. And here are um, scans, again, of brains that are active. This is normal activity on this side. This is looking from the back of the brain. And this person's got lit up areas that suggest that these are actually uh, visual cortex. Your eyes are in the front, but the information from your eyes goes to the back of your brain, again, for a reason that nobody knows. And, you know, so that's nice lighting up there. And then there's some maybe sound being, um, and there's processing there, you know, thinking about what's going on. And then you look at the seizure, and it's just all over the place. And so it's a definite benefit to somebody who has that kind of massive seizure activity to just have a, a, a rift between the two hemispheres so that the um, activity can't cross over to the other hemisphere. And it could be life-saving. So this is what has been done, or was done. And the byproduct then is a person 
with two brains, in a sense. That is, they have brains in which the two hemispheres can no longer communicate with each other. So now they have separate thoughts, separate emotions, separate intentions, different experiences in those two hemispheres. It's like separate people in the same skull riding around at the top of the same set of equipment, which they have to share. Um, I mentioned Roger Sperry here as another very famous neuroscientist who did a lot of work finding out the consequences of this split brain um, operation in individuals. And he did it by studying the activity of each hemisphere separately. And we could say, well, how do you do that? But you've already had a clue because we know that the two hemispheres are responsible for or, uh, receiving sensations from the opposite side of the brain, of the body, excuse me, and um, sending out motor orders to the opposite side of the brain. And that's intact because those are some of the connections that are left, you know, they're deeper in the brain. So how did Sperry decide he was going to do this? By feeding information to only one hemisphere at a time. And how does he do that? Put something into the right hand so it's sensed. Don't look, but just feel it, okay? And it's in the right hand, so which hemisphere is sensing it? The left hemisphere. So only the left hemisphere knows about what's in the right hand. Similarly, you can show something only in the left visual field, and it's sensed only in the right hemisphere. Vision, by the way, is a little more complicated than the other things that we've talked about, because you have not sort of one eyeball feeding into one hemisphere and the other eyeball feeding into the other hemisphere. Your retina is divided into two parts, and you have your visual field at your nose divided into two halves, right? The left visual field and the right visual field. And you can see from the diagram, it gets a little confusing sometimes, but each of your eyeballs each is uh, sending information from the right visual field to the left hemisphere because that right visual field information comes into the eye at an angle and it hits the retina at the left side, which goes back to the left hemisphere. And the same thing from the left visual field, the information from the left of your nose ends up in your right hemisphere. Now, your brains are talking, two hemispheres are talking to each other all the time in your brains, but imagine if they couldn't talk to each other. So here's an experiment of the Sperry type, okay? Here is a person sitting at a, now he does not have the top of his skull off. They just did that for the sake of the argument, okay? But what he's getting is information on the screen in front of him that's flashed very quickly. And it has to be flashed very quickly because otherwise he'll move his eyes and he'll see both sides. Okay? But if you flash it very quickly, and then you ask the person to say what they saw, or you ask them to find what they saw using the left hand, you find that only the left hemisphere can talk. So if you ask the person what they saw, what do they say? The left hemisphere is talking. What did the left hemisphere see? When something was flashed very quickly, it saw what was on the right. It sees the word ring. And so you say, what did you say? And he says, I saw ring. Then you say, okay, take your left hand, controlled by the right hemisphere. If you ask, the right hemisphere will never answer that it saw key, okay? But if you say, take your hand, put it under the screen there, and feel around, see if you can find what it was. Using your left hand, they come up with the key. After years of testing of a relatively small number of people, but over and over again, who had these separated hemispheres, it's clear that there are some functions that are much more strongly represented in one of the hemispheres than in the other. So I've already said language, that is spoken language. 
And people will say, well, you know, there's only language in the left hemisphere. That's not really true because he could find the key. So there are language abilities on the right side as well, but the right side has no access to your speech apparatus. So it could understand the word key and other simple statements. It's not really good at highfalutin language. So the left is considered to be the hemisphere that's primarily responsible for language, spoken and written language especially. Numerical and scientific skills turn out to be more left side. The ability to use and understand sign language would overlap with other language, you know, spoken language, that's also there. And in general, reasoning is more prominent on the left side of your brain, okay? The right side, you see music, you see artistic awareness, more represented. Again, these are not exclusive. It's just that it's stronger in the right hemisphere. Space and pattern perception. The recognition of faces and the emotional content of the expressions of people's faces and emotional information in general. The emotional content of language as well as the emotional content of faces. And also then generating mental images like trying to remember, you know, like a map-like picture of where you're going, things like that. That would be more right hemisphere, okay? So the two hemispheres are not the same. And these differences have been caricatured like this with the left hemisphere being the sort of dull nerd and the right hemisphere being the exciting, interesting, emotional, artistic side of you. And this has led to the notion that people who are rational and orderly and self-controlled and all that kind of thing are left hemisphere people and people who are artistic and emotional and nonconformist and interesting are right hemisphere people. But this has, according to neuroscientists, been overdone and it's not really endorsed by evidence, not really supported by evidence, not endorsed by neuroscientists. The figure that I showed you emphasizes the differences between the hemispheres, but again, in intact brains, both hemispheres are always working together, and there's some of each kind of function being contributed by each side. So there's no actual evidence that a whole hemisphere with all of its functions can dominate in individuals, and in fact, if you're saying, you know, oh, you're so artistic, you're right-brained, you might as well just say you're artistic. You're not really adding anything by saying you're right-brained. But still, the two hemispheres are different. And as I say, to me at least, hemispheric specialization is in itself interesting. But equally interesting is another point that the split brain findings seem to make about how our intact brains function every day. But it is common for scientists as well as people who just are interested in this kind of thing to you know, emphasize the fact that the two hemispheres do work seamlessly together and you're very much unaware of having two hemispheres. And this implies that it's only when communication between them is cut off by cutting the corpus callosum that you would see the two hemispheres functioning separately. But if we look at the uh, after effects of surgery for the split brain patients, and Sperry, the guy that I showed you before, he was very interested in studying their consciousness. He concluded from his studies that both hemispheres, when separated, independently exhibit consciousness. That is, they each independently are aware of the self, they're aware of the mind and the world, and they each separately have the intention to take action. What evidence do we have? The behaviors after the surgery that showed conflict between the two hemispheres. Much of this work was done by Michael Gazaniga, who's in the film I didn't show you. So hemisphere conflict. Here's a patient, Vicky, who would go shopping after she recovered from her surgery, and before she had adjusted, because people do adjust to this surgery over a longer period of time, okay? But she would go shopping for the week's groceries, and she'd say, I'd reach with my right hand for the thing I wanted, but the left hand would come in and they'd kind of fight, almost like repelling magnets. She said picking out food for the week sometimes took her two or three hours. 
because her two hands didn't agree on what to put in the basket. Vicky also would sometimes take hours to get dressed because she would pull something out of her closet and the other hand would put it back in, pull out something else. Sometimes she said she ended up wearing two outfits at the same time. And you can imagine with a little extension that she was just trying to please both hemispheres, that, is, that each one of them got their way. During an interview, a couple more examples, during an interview, a male patient raised one hand to strike his wife and the other hand came up and grabbed it. Another man was very frustrated when he buttoned his shirt with one hand and the other hand followed behind unbuttoning all the buttons. <laughs> one half of his brain liked that shirt. The other half didn't like that shirt. Here's on occasion, a patient's two legs showed hemispheric disagreement when he wanted to go for a walk. His right leg would move forward, but his left leg would either not move or it would step in the opposite direction. The left leg would only move in the same direction as the right if he went back home. This same patient showed other evidence of hemispheric conflict, such as the left hand turning off his television right after his right hand had turned it on. Same thing as the shirt. This evidence, according to Gazaniga, who you didn't get to meet, yeah, indicates dual consciousness. That is, each hemisphere appears to be acting on its own in a way that reflects its own view of events and its own will. But there's more. If you stare at this dot, I'm not going to be able to do this because I can't do it fast enough. But just look at the dot and see. I'm going to set these things past you, okay? See, I can't do it. I was supposed to do that for like a millisecond, but here's what was flashed. It's called a chimeric picture. It's got, obviously, halves of two different faces, drawings, okay? If the request to the person who has the severed corpus callosum is using your left hand, point to what you saw, what do you think is the response? What would they point to? Using their left hand, what would they point to? They would point with their left hand to what their right hemisphere saw. And their right hemisphere saw stuff on the left. I know, it takes a minute. <laughs> if the request is, okay, the respondent points to the picture of a blonde woman. And if the question is, what did you see? So that's a verbal question. The left hemisphere responds. And what's the response? Saw a guy with a mustache, black hair and a mustache, okay? Man with a beard, whatever. But here's what's really interesting, I think. The response is never, I saw half of a picture. That's all they saw. Each hemisphere saw half but they didn't realize they were only seeing half of the picture. What the left actually saw was half of the man with the beard, and what the right actually saw was half of the blonde woman. Why don't they say something? Why don't they say, I saw half of the picture? Because the patients seem to have no sense that anything is odd. Each hemisphere is seeing the same thing it would have seen when the brain was intact, and it reacts accordingly. Nothing odd going on here. The hemispheres are used to seeing only half of a scene at a time, and so are your hemispheres. So neither hemisphere is troubled, but now the hemispheres are not sharing information. So does the overt behavior of one hemisphere bother the other hemisphere? Does the left hemisphere, which saw a dark-haired man, say, my left hand is pointing at the blonde woman. Why is my left hand doing that? No. The left hemisphere comes up with a rationalization of some kind for the odd behavior of the other half of the body. So for example, I was just going to say she looks a lot like my sister. That's why I'm pointing at her, okay? And apparently, that individual is quite happy with that. Now, we'll just pause here for a second and think, what does that imply about the rest of us? Here's another experiment, very quickly. I think I must be running kind of late here. So here's another experiment, and these pictures are not that easy to see, but this is from an actual experiment. The picture on the left is a chicken foot, and the picture on the right is a cabin in snow, okay? And so the individual is asked, to pick from this array of pictures in front of them on the drafting board 
something to match, and each hand goes separately. All right? So the picture on the right <coughs> means that the left hemisphere saw a chicken foot, and the picture on the left says that the, the right hemisphere saw a snowy scene. Okay? I know it gets a little confusing. but So the left hemisphere, which saw, you can see it on the left, okay? saw the chicken foot, points to a chicken. The right hemisphere that saw the snowy cabin points to a shovel. Obviously, the subject sees this happening, sees what their hands are doing. But when asked to explain, the subject says, the chicken head goes with the chicken foot, and you need a shovel to clean up after the chicken. <laughs> this is a quote. This is a complete rationalization. There are many examples of this kind of fabrication from the experiments that Gazzaniga has done. Show the right hemisphere a picture of a bell, Asked to draw something with the left hand, the person draws a bell. And when they're asked why, they say, oh, I heard a bell on the way in. So after 30 years of research, Gazzaniga has concluded that the left hemisphere in all of us has the job of making a consistent narrative of our lives, making it up, if necessary, to rationalize events that it doesn't understand, including many actions that originate in the right hemisphere. He calls this function the left brain interpreter. In all of the patients that he studied, the interpreter made up reasons for unexplained activity that Gazzaniga knew, because he's the one who set it up, he knew these actions were actually controlled by the right hemisphere. And again, the patients didn't seem to notice that anything was odd, which suggests that they've been doing this kind of thing all their lives, even before their surgeries, which suggests that we've all been doing this kind of thing all of our lives, and this makes sense. The interpreter that Gazzaniga's talking about was not created by the surgery. It was just revealed by the surgery. And here, by the way, is a book that I think is potentially very interesting. I haven't actually read it, but I just found it. Okay, Who's in Charge? Free Will and the Science of the Brain by Michael Gazzaniga. And he really is a great guy. I mean, I think it would be very readable if anybody's interested in that kind of issue. But what about the right hemisphere? Presumably, it's less rational. Remember, the left hemisphere is where he says this interpreter is. So what's going on in the right hemisphere? It's especially the right specializes in emotion and imagery. Well, this suggests something like the cognitive unconscious, nonlinear visual thinking, like Freud was talking about when he was talking about dreams and how they're put together. So I went and had a look in the literature, and sure enough, we see that during REM sleep, right, rapid eye movement sleep, which is when you're dreaming, there is, in particular, right frontal hemisphere, frontal lobe, um, lateralization activity, and right lateralization in occipital activity, which is vision. So the right hemisphere is doing a lot of work when you're dreaming, with nonlinear thinking and with visual imagery. So it seems we all have two separate brains. They usually work well enough together. Their different roles are hard to detect when you have an intact brain, but the data suggests that we very likely experience conflicts between our two hemispheres in deciding what to do at the moment, in uh, object choices like food and clothes, and, and probably lots more. And the data suggests that we provide ourselves with made-up explanations of our own behaviors that we don't know are fiction. If you pay attention, you can detect some activities of the mute right hemisphere. I've been doing this for a while since I sort of learned about this, okay? And I started really noticing what I swear are right hemisphere contributions to my otherwise verbal train of thought, okay? Especially then imagery and unexpected but functional actions. And you've all done simple things like this. These are very simple examples. But they're recent, and so I could write them down. 
Um, so here, there I am, I'm thinking in words, and I'm in my house, and I'm thinking, I have to go downstairs and get the clothes out of the dryer, and then I gotta go upstairs and change my shirt. And I get the image of a different shirt, just a, a visual image of a different shirt that happens to be in the wash. So it's in the dryer. So I can just, and it's obviously to me a message that says, just wear that shirt. You know, just get it out of the dryer and put it on, okay? But it just came as an image. I was grocery shopping just this weekend. I was scanning the fresh vegetables. I didn't choose scallions. I didn't want scallions. Turned the corner. I got an image of scallions, which I don't usually think a lot about scallions. I saw an image of scallions. No, I don't want scallions. Okay, so then I'm wandering around the aisles and everything, and I'm just not, I'm thinking about other things, and I end up in front of the scallions again. And I think that's because somebody in here wants scallions. You've had this kind of thing happen where you're looking for your keys and you can't imagine where your keys are, and then you get a flash of an image. The key's on the hall table. It's not a sentence, it's just an image. And you go look, and there they are. So such experiences suggest to me that the title that I gave at the beginning, the right brain, left brain, why you're never alone, title isn't quite right. It probably should be right brain, left brain, why neither of you is ever alone. <laughs> because you really are two, and neither of you is ever alone. Thanks. Thank you.